Chapter 2 Blessings and Curses Sermon 150, preached Friday, the 28th of February, 1556, on Deuteronomy 27, verses 11 through 15. Reading from Deuteronomy 27, beginning at verse 9. And Moses and the Levitical priests spoke to all Israel, saying, Be silent and listen, O Israel. This day you have become a people for the Lord your God. You shall therefore hearken to the voice of the Lord your God, and do his commandments and his statutes, which I commanded you this day. Moses also charged the people on that day, saying, When you cross the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people, Simeon and Levi, and Judah and Issachar, and Joseph and Benjamin. And for the curse, these shall stand on Mount Ebal, Reuben and Gad, and Asher and Zebulun, and Dan and Naphtali. And then the Levites shall answer and say to all the men of Israel with a loud voice, Cursed be he who makes a graven image, or a molten image, an abomination to the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsmen, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. We saw yesterday how God intended that the favor he showed unto the people of Israel should be acknowledged first by solemn sacrifice and second by the erection of a monument, so that it might be known that this land was not purchased by the hand of man, but was given by God to that people for an inheritance. But now we have another commandment by which God meant to bind the people unto himself in another manner. Indeed, he had done so already, but because men are so difficult to root down, and because they cannot be bound by too many bands and cords to hold them to obedience, God had ample reason to add what is set down here in order to keep them better under obedience. The Usefulness of Blessings and Curses We have already dealt with the fact that when God gave His law, it was a mutual covenant, and just as He bound Himself unto the children of Israel to be their God, so also the people of Israel bound themselves to be His people. Here, however, an additional confirmation is given to ratify that first bond the better. God ordained that when they had passed over Jordan, the people should divide themselves into two companies, and that six tribes should stand upon Mount Gerizim, and the other six should stand upon Mount Ebal over against them, so that the Ark of the Covenant and the priests should stand in the midst, and that those who were on Gerizim should bless, and those who were on the side of Ebal should curse. Now we shall look into the content of the curses and blessings later on, as we deal with the chapter. Note at this point, though, that God, in order to encourage the people, not only delivered his will to them and said, You shall walk thus, but also added to it, You will not serve me in vain, and your pains will not be lost, for I will cause you to prosper, and it is for your own welfare that I would have you to be subject unto me. I seek after no profit or advantage by this, but it is for your own benefit and ease that you should cleave unto me in keeping my commandments. Behold what blessing God gave, intending that the people should serve him with a willing mind, and not through force or constraint. Again, because men are so stiff-necked that they cannot stoop down without raising a ruckus, and because, on the other hand, their lust carry them away in such a headlong manner that they quickly forget what it is to serve God, and act like wild horses that have broken loose 
threats are here added. Take heed how you offend me, for vengeance is ready for those who despise my law. Thus you see the curses that we shall take up more fully in the 28th chapter, but Moses touches on them here by way of example. Now it would have been enough for God to say, Whoever will serve me in keeping my law, he shall be blessed, and I will make his whole life prosperous for him. If God has once promised to recompense those who serve him, it ought well to suffice us. What would men need to say in their own behalf? Similarly, seeing that God pronounces a sentence of condemnation upon those who transgress his law, considering that the judge has spoken, no man ought to reply. What need is there, then, for men to ratify what God has said, as if his word were not of sufficient strength and authority in itself? True it is that God well deserves to be hearkened to, and whatever he says is an unchangeable decree. All the same, he wants men to witness outwardly that they accept what he wills us to follow. He wants us to acknowledge the favor offered to us, and to declare that we are assured by faith that he will not deceive us in promising us prosperity when we endeavor to live according to his word. God, therefore, will have us to agree with him. But we also confess in humility and fear that there is great reason why he should punish all those who despise and overthrow his righteousness and commandments. And when he threatens them, we may not think that it is in vain, but that in the end they will feel the execution of the sentence. God, therefore, in this respect will have us to say, Amen, both to the promises he makes to those who keep his law, and to the threats he denounces against all those who are rebels and despisers of him. So then, we have now made a good entrance into the understanding of this place. We shall more fully treat of the blessings and cursings when we come to chapter 28, and it is better to handle them there, because that place is more fit for it. It suffices to know, in a word, that when God offers his favor to those who obey him, it is to the end that they should serve him, not through constraint, but of free good will, knowing that it is for their own ease and welfare, and again that on the other hand, such as are of their own nature given over to their lustful desires, and take to themselves a lawless liberty of living wrongly, must be restrained by such fear that they see they will not escape the hand of God, but that in the end they must come to account. So you can see what we have to bear in mind, in a word, until we come to handle the matter more at large. Blessings, conditional and unconditional. Let us then note well that God thinks it not enough to have spoken himself, but he will have us also to agree, as it were, in one melody with him, as we noted earlier. This is to show the faith we have in his word, which consists in these two points, namely, that we embrace his promises and hang wholly upon them, and second, that we tremble as often as he gives us any sign of his wrath so that we are not dense or drowsy, or so hardened that he must strike us with heavy blows before we feel his anger, but that we prevent this by endeavoring to obey him, and avoid his vengeance as much as we can. Now then, the blessings in this place are conditional. For example, blessed is he who observes the law of God, who maintains his service purely, who is not given to superstitions and idolatries, who does not abuse his holy name, and observes the day of rest and all other ceremonies, who honors his father and mother. The blessing, I say, is matched with condition, so that if we serve God, 
he will show himself liberal to us, and we shall not lose our time. But all these blessings depend on the fact that God of his free goodness had chosen this people so that they were not to rest on this point as if to say, Blessed is he who serves God. For after all, no man discharges himself of his duty, as we have already declared, and as we shall see further in the end of this chapter. Seeing then that we are all sinners, even including the faithful, so that when we endeavor to walk uprightly we still make many false steps, what will become of us? It is certain that we should all be deprived of the hope of salvation if we had nothing else to lean upon than our own righteousness. But as I have told you, the conditional promises here depend on the fact that God has received us for his people and wants us to take him as our Father. This is grounded on nothing other than his mercy. So then, we must be thoroughly persuaded that God will take pity on us, even though we are wretched sinners and do not deserve to be pitied. He will receive us as righteous and accept us, even though we deserve to be rejected by him. And although we can hope for nothing but utter confusion, Yet, notwithstanding, we are assured of the inheritance of salvation because we are his children. We must be thoroughly persuaded concerning this point. So then, seeing that God has chosen us out and set us apart for his service, we may not take license and indulge in all manner of wickedness, but rather we must endeavor to obey him. For this reason we must be quickened and pricked by his promises to serve him. In this way, we can see how the conditional promises are not in vain with respect to us when they are grounded on the freely bestowed goodness of God, by which he receives us even though we are not worthy to be received, not imputing our vices to us. Although there are many stains and corruption in us, yet he hides them and does not call them to account. And so we see now how God encouraged the people of Israel to be of good comfort. For if he had begun in this manner with them saying, Serve me, and you shall be well recompensed for your labor. If God should speak this simple word to us, Alas, what could we do? For even when we should try to serve him, we should be very far from the perfection that he commands. Those who should run best would be but in the middle when they should have come to the end. All of us would be discouraged rather than have a good heart. But we must join both things together. One, that he will not deceive us in anything and two, that he binds us to serve him, and declares that he will bear with us in our infirmities and not deal severely with us to pay us as we deserve, but will use a fatherly goodness. Now on this basis we may be of good comfort to serve him, when we may say, Surely it is true, Lord, that I do not discharge myself of the hundredth part of my duty towards you, but no matter what, you will not fail to accept me, because you do not respect what I do, but take a pleasure in me as in your own child. You see, then, how God pardons us, and does not regard our faults and imperfections, which are in the service we yield to Him. When we serve Him of a sincere good will, and not hypocritically, He likes all we do, and rewards us for it. Since we hear this, let us take pains, and receive the bridle into our mouths, as they say, and press on, And even though we are hindered by the vices of our flesh, yet let us force ourselves to go further. And why? Because we shall not lose our labor. Thus you see what God means. We perceive his inestimable goodness in that of his own good will, he offers his promises to us. Although he is in no wise bound unto us, as we have seen heretofore, 
His will is to win us to himself by all the means that he may. Now he repeats this point again, and that is done because of our sloth and negligence. For that reason he adds this aid, and all for our profit, for what is he advantaged thereby? Will he gain anything by our service? Let us defy him to the utmost. What will that hurt him? But he will possess us for our own welfare. The Rewards of Faithful Works And with this he shows us also what mind is requisite for observing his law properly, which is that we come willingly and yield ourselves to him, and place our whole felicity and joy in serving him, and put this sentence into our hearts, that where our treasure is, there will our hearts be also. You see what we have to notice touching the first point on the blessings. In effect, then, what is it that we have to do? Although nowadays we do not have the ceremony spoken of in this place, yet the substance of it must be in force among us, which is that in seeking to serve God, we must have an eye always on His promises. Behold, our God calls and allures us unto Himself. And how does He do so? He might have commanded us in one word, saying, You owe all to me. See, therefore, that you discharge yourselves as I command. But no, he bears with us and displays a fatherly goodness toward us in saying, My children, I will not have your service unrecompensed. Indeed, I owe you nothing. Yet, nevertheless, I shall be so bountiful above all that you need, if you serve me, that your life shall be happy and you shall prosper in all things. And besides that, there is a sovereign blessing for us concerning the life everlasting. For all that we can desire or look for in this world is nothing in comparison with the salvation we hope for through faith and all the blessings God promises us and offers us concerning the life to come. Therefore, all this ought to make us the readier and better disposed to submit ourselves to God. Why? Because, seeing that our Lord seeks nothing but our welfare in our obeying Him, and offers us a reward for so doing, are we not too incredibly wretched if we do not enforce ourselves to serve God? You can see then how we ought with our good consent to ratify all the promises contained in the Holy Scriptures, that while others think it is only lost time to do well, we may always have this imprinted in our hearts, that there is nothing better than to cleave unto God. The heathenish sort think themselves very happy in following their own lusts. When lecherous and covetous persons have scraped together money from all sides, they think that all is well, and they rejoice in their deeds. If fornicators, who are brutish in their fleshly lusts, are allowed to enjoy their pleasures, they wallow in them, they are drunk with them, they are wholly bewitched by them. If a vainglorious man comes to any dignity, and is advanced to any authority among men, he thinks there is no other joy or happiness but to be in high estate. At the same place are all despisers of God, and in the meanwhile the poor faithful ones are mocked. They are poor persons, they are set at naught, they hang their wings down, they do nothing but drop and pine away in this world. These wretched souls, say some, are not well advised to take so many pains over things they do not understand. For what profit do they have all their travail? It seems, therefore, that they who seek to serve God are greatly beguiled, and that the wicked bear sway everywhere. But we must be thoroughly resolved on the other side, as it is said in the prophet Isaiah, 
Say to the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their actions. Isaiah 3.10 The prophet Isaiah would have us to fight against this temptation, even though the whole world should laugh the godly to scorn, and the wicked triumph over them, yet for all that the faithful should not be astonished, but say to themselves, No, no, the righteous man shall not lose his labor, he shall not be deceived of his expectation, when he depends wholly upon the promises of God. What we have to gather from this place, then, is that as often as we read the promises in the Scripture where it is said, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. Those who walk in the obedience of his word shall be blessed. Blessed is he who walks uprightly and soundly with his neighbors, but especially those who renounce the world because they have a better inheritance in heaven. Psalm 112.1, and Matthew 19.21. As often I say, as we read these things, we must be confirmed in our faith and answer with a good courage. Amen, Lord, it is so. We do not dispute what you have said. We embrace your promises in this place and trust assuredly in them. Thus you see how every man ought to enforce himself to serve God, because he bears with us so gently and commands us not so precisely as he might, having all authority over us, but applies himself to our imperfection in order to win us and to enjoy us. And above all, let us be mindful of this general promise that God calls us to himself as his children, that he spares us and bears with us, and does not enter into any extremity of rigor with us, and that even though there are many faults in our works, he accepts them, that if we offend, we always find pardon at his hand, that when we swerve aside, he brings us back unto the way, and that none of our faults is imputed to us. You see what we have to keep in mind. The Necessity of Threats The threatenings of God are also very necessary for us. We can see that great pride and rebelliousness are in all of us, so that even though we are not rebellious on purpose, to set God at naught and to cast off His yoke, yet we are so dim-witted that we do not think of Him much, so that the enticements of the world seduce us to the extent that we are heedless of the warnings God gives us. If he calls us by gentleness, he can get nothing out of us, and therefore he uses threats. For this we see that he uses every proper device to hold us in awe under his obedience. On the one hand, he uses mild and loving speech toward us, as I have already discussed, saying, Come to me, my children. Indeed, I owe you nothing, but still I shall bind myself to you. I promise that if you serve me, it shall be for your profit. Thus our Lord speaks to us as a father that encourages his children in order to win him to be ruled by him and to employ himself in his service with a free-hearted affection. On the other hand, God, perceiving that this is not enough to move us, uses threats and says, Take heed, if you think to cast away my word and yet remain unpunished, you deceive yourselves. I must call you to account for it. I will not allow my children to mock me. I must be their judge. Do not look for any pardon when you have abused my patience. I must double your punishments, and my vengeance must fall horribly upon you. Therefore, when God declares that our sins are unpardonable, and yet we continue in them and make no account of submitting ourselves to Him, especially since He has applied Himself in every way to us, 
so that we shall remain in his obedience and not perish? Since we see that he has such a care for our salvation, must it not be the case that we are entirely too stubborn, indeed very beast, if we are not moved to better behavior by the fatherly care he shows toward us? Yes, indeed. And therefore, being stirred up by the goodness and gentleness of God, of which even now I speak, let us also wake ourselves up with his threatenings, when we see that our flesh is wanton, and that it draws us unto evil, let us say, Alas, should we shake off his yoke like wild beasts? What has God said? Let us therefore tremble when we hear the threats of our God. For if the anger of an earthly king is the messenger of death, as Solomon says in Proverbs 16.4, what ought we to think of the anger of God when it is announced against us? So then, let us learn to tame ourselves with fear. When the temptations of Satan start to prevail over us, and our sins act as baits to deceive us, let it come into our minds to say, What? Shall I, under the delusion of some pleasure that will soon vanish, go and provoke the anger of my God and so perish forever? After that manner, I say, we ought to call God's threatenings to our remembrance, and then answer, Amen, to them, saying, Indeed, Lord, it is even so. It is no children's game. When you pronounce condemnation upon the wicked, you are ready to execute it, and when you have once pronounced the word with your mouth, it is all the same as if we saw the fire already kindled to consume us. In this way, I say, we ought to receive all the threats God utters against us, for that is the best means to teach us to observe the law. I mean, as far as our weakness will allow it, for, as I have told you, it is not possible for us to come to total perfection as long as we are enclosed in this flesh of ours. All the same, we may well dedicate ourselves to God and be held in His fear, if on the one hand His promises are in force with us, and on the other we give ear to His threatenings. Instruction from God Let us now look at the order here set out. Moses, together with the priest of the tribe of Levi, commanded the people that six tribes were to stand on Mount Ebal, and six on Mount Gerizim. And afterwards he said, Keep my statutes and commandments, which I command you this day, for you are made a people under your God. This has already been expounded, but it is good to bear in mind always what has been said concerning it, which is that God speaks by the mouth of his priest as if he were there visibly in his own person. And that is so that his words should be received with the greater reverence. For when we see men who are just as mortal as we are, we are of the opinion that whatever proceeds from them may very well be rejected, and if no account is made of it, we think that the matter is not very important. And thus we see that the word of God is often esteemed lightly. For when we see no one speaking but creatures like ourselves, we think that their pronouncements are nothing but a sounding of words. But God wants the majesty of his words to be known, and even though it is brought by men, he will not have its worth to be diminished so that men ignore it, but he will have every man to bow down before it and receive the yoke he puts on him. God therefore speaks in this place of Moses and the priests, but in such a way and in such language as to cause the people to lift up their minds higher, to realize that although they are taught by the means and ministry of men, yet they ought to confess that God is the author of the word that men preach to them, and they ought to receive it as from God himself, and so be silent in listening to it. 
making no reply or criticism of it. For such contempt is not aimed at the mortal creature, but God himself is despised by it. Therefore, let us note well all the ways in which God authorizes his word, that we may be held to it and be ordered by it, so that every one of us bows down his head submissively as often as men speak to us in the name of God. And moreover, we also see the order God has appointed in his church. He will have all the world answer Amen, for we ought to all be partakers of his teaching. It must not be kept stored away only for great men, but the smallest also must be instructed by it, so that they might be edified and profited by it. But however the case stands, there were always priests to speak, who were ordained to teach the people, as it is said in Malachi 2.7. For the lips of the priest shall keep knowledge, and people shall seek law from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord's host. We see then that God in all times appointed some in the office of teaching the people and of bearing abroad his word. And so, we today also need such an order. And we know what St. Paul says on the subject of Romans 12.6, 1 Corinthians 12.28, and Ephesians 4.11. And it is proved to us also throughout all the Holy Scripture that God will have certain laws established and certain men appointed to bear abroad his word to be teachers in his church, and to instruct the people in his name. We gather from this that when God has appointed such an order, all those who cannot allow themselves to be taught by this common order with the whole body of the church, though they may call themselves Christians, yet they are no more holy than horses, for they think that it is enough for them to grant, in a word, that the gospel is the word of God. But on the contrary, we see here, that if we want to be of the body of the church and have God take us for his children, we must hear the word of God as it is ministered to us by the ministry of men. But because this point has been dealt with at large previously, I have only at this time to glance at it by the way. The Privilege of Obedience There is also this point. Today you are made the people of God if you keep his commandments. Verses 9 and 10 Therefore, just as our Lord receives us into his house, so must we also wholly give ourselves unto him, knowing that to this end he has taken us out from the rest of the world, and will have us to be his own, as it were his peculiar inheritance. All men, of course, are bound to serve him, but yet notwithstanding, when he calls us to himself and shows himself our Father, does he not bind us to himself with a double bond? Yes, surely. Are we not then bereft of all sense and reason, and wholly bewitched, if we're not moved to yield ourselves over to his will, so that he may guide us and bear rule over all our life? Let us then weigh well these words, Today you are made the people of the Lord your God, and therefore keep his commandments. How are we made the people of God, except by being his church, and by having the use of his sacraments, and that is all the same as if he appeared among us? For we may not expect that God should come down from heaven in his own person, or send his angels to us. Rather, the true mark whereby he will be known to be present among us is in the preaching of his word purely unto us. For there can be no doubt but that then he bears rule in our midst. So then, let this thing profit us, that we know that our Lord receives us to himself, and will have us to be of his own household. Seeing it so, 
Let us take pains to obey him in all our life, and to keep his commandments. Let us not wander like brute beasts as the wretched unbelievers do, because they never knew what it was to be of the house of God. Curse on Secret Idolatry But now let us come to the rehearsal Moses makes of the curses. First of all he says, Cursed is he who makes an idol, or any molten image, or any carved image. All this is abominable to God. And cursed is he who puts it in any secret place, and all the people shall say, Amen. Let us note that Moses does not specify in this place all the curses, each one by itself, but rather sets down certain examples to show that all those who swerve aside from the law of God seek nothing other than to run willfully into utter ruin and destruction. The effect, therefore, of all this is that if we want to prosper, we must draw near to God, seeing that He is the fountain of all happiness and prosperity. Whereas, on the other side, all those who depart from Him go and cast themselves into utter destruction. All those who cast off the yoke of God, who do not yield themselves to follow His law and His word, depart from Him, and do as much as is in their power to banish themselves from His presence. And so it is all the same, as if they had cast themselves into the bottom of hell, and sought nothing else in this life but to provoke the vengeance of God against them, and thus to seek their own woe. So this is what we have to keep in mind. Now God begins with His own service, and not without reason. For, as we have declared before, the law is divided into two tables, to show us that men ought first of all to so behave themselves that God might be honored. This is the first and principal duty that we ought to perform, because we are His creatures, and because He has fashioned us for His glory. Let us work toward that end, and let our lives be lived with reference to it, that the first table shows us briefly how we ought to behave ourselves towards our God. This is the reason why God now says in these curses, Cursed is he who makes an idol. But as I have told you before, Moses only rehearses certain curses so as to comprehend the whole in one part, as we have seen examples of. In effect, therefore, when it is said, Cursed is he who makes an idol, it is the same as if Moses had in general pronounced a curse upon those who falsify and corrupt the service and worship of God. It is as if he should say, You know how and after what manner our God wants to be worshipped by us. Whoever invents any manner of idolatry, whoever devises any manner of superstition, makes idols. And that is not to serve the living God, but rather to follow their own fancies and imaginations, and therefore they are all accursed. You see then how we ought to expound this place. It was Moses' intention to set down for us here such a specific instance as would cause us to see most plainly an intolerable corruption of the worship of God. For when God is misshapen in any painting or in any puppet, or in any other piece of wood or stone that men use to represent his image, and say it is a resemblance of him, this is a thoroughly gross and outrageous affair. Unfortunately, men do not share this opinion, as we see in popery, when men say, Lo, yonder is God, even a remembrance of him. It seems that they are so brutish that they think there is no divine majesty in heaven unless it is represented in the shape of an idol. In contrast, however, those who have had a taste of what God is, and have heard any syllable of his word, 
where it is said that God is an immortal and infinite spirit, the fountain of life. Such men know that it does immensely great injury to him to represent him by a dead thing and by a corruptible creature, to give his name to a mere puppet as if he were but a creature and less than even we. Those, therefore, who have even a slight taste of this doctrine abhor the setting up of any idol and the notion of serving God by going to one. They abhor the notion that any should pray to a dead thing or look for health from anything that can do nothing, neither good nor bad. Therefore, if this were well marked, we should find that Moses intended in this place to make idolatry more detestable according to the rule we have heretofore expounded. Yet, notwithstanding, we have two things to note in this place. The first is that God cannot permit His infinite majesty to be represented under stone, wood, painting, or any other creature in the world. This being the case, what must we do when the representation is introduced in the very worship of God? We ought to lift up our minds above the world, and know that we may neither attach to nor make any idol or puppet of him, for he cannot abide it. This is one point to be noted. Secondly, we must also note that God will not be served or worshipped after our fancies, but he will have us to walk according to his word, without adding anything hereto or taking away anything therefrom, so that all the inventions of men are equivalent to so many idols. They think that God will be pleased with what they do, but this is simply a bare guess on their part while they ignore what he has said he desires. Therefore, they are really serving their own selves and not the living God, for he has given them a rule to live by. In sum, all of their so-called worship of God, deviously drawn up after their own fancies without warrant from God, for they cannot say, This he commanded me are but idols of their own forging. Let this be well noted. Now let us consider how God says, Cursed is he who forges idols. Papists take pain to trudge from altar to altar, mumbling their prayers before their images, decking them out with candles, and performing other rituals. And if a man tells them that God dislikes all this, it angers them, and they fall to railing against God himself. And although they think they are winning a score of heavens, every step they set out is a casting of themselves into the gulf of hell. And why? Because no matter how fair their replies, yet the judge pronounces this sentence upon them, Cursed are all they who make idols. Let them go and seek their wages at the hands of the devil. Our Lord has already pronounced his sentence, which is contained here, Cursed are all idolaters. Now someone may say that it is no great harm when a man acts from a good intent, saying, I think it is good. I believe it is well to do so. All the same, God detests every bit of it, because it is a forging of a new God when men turn themselves from the pure simplicity of the worship of God to devise this or that. Although they think to do well, yet they are accursed. And why? Because God dislikes and condemns what they do. After all, it is not for a mere mortal creature to promise this and do that to himself, but God must promise and we must answer Amen. And similarly, when he threatens, we must be confounded, and every mouth stopped before him. We must have audience, and we must receive his threats and confirm them, as I have told you.
And here mention is purposefully made of a secret place, to show that although a man might not be convinced before the eyes of the world, yet he is surely guilty in the eyes of God, for the heavenly judge will find him out well enough. Therefore, let us not beguile ourselves, and think that we can escape and remain unpunished, just because men do not reprove us and convict us of the evil we have done. For we may well seek refuge in a hiding hole, but God will find us out, seeing that he says, Cursed is he who makes any idol and puts it in a secret place. And again he says, It is an abomination unto the Lord, to show that men must not beguile themselves by standing upon their own opinion or upon the judgment of the world. It is enough that God says, Such a thing displeases me. Even if the world likes us, we gain nothing thereby. So then, let us take heed that we frame ourselves to the will of God, in such a way that this world cannot carry us away, and so that we serve neither our own lusts nor those of other men, but submit ourselves always unto our heavenly judge. Thus you see what we have to bear in mind. For when it comes to the service of God, we must not look to see whether there are any witnesses of our doings here below, for even though we may deceive the whole world, yet God sees us, and we cannot escape his sight. Whatever lurking places we may have, let us know that our condemnation is ready at hand. And so, let us order our lives so that God is served and honored, not only with our feet, our hands, and our eyes, but also with the service of our hearts, that is to say, with all our affections and with all our thoughts given over to Him. And to conclude, we are taught that the service of God is called spiritual for a good reason, John 4.24. And we may understand from this that it is not enough for us to do Him reverence before men by kneeling down and by using other such ceremonies, or by abstaining from idols in the sight of men, but also in secret when every man is withdrawn into his secret place. Even then we must avow him for our God, and all our affections must be held under his obedience. And we must have the purity that St. Paul speaks of, namely the obedience of faith, Romans 1.5, by which every one of us may dedicate and consecrate himself wholly unto God. Prayer Now let us kneel down before the majesty of our good God with acknowledgment of our faults, praying him that we may be touched more and more with true repentance, to be displeased with ourselves, so that when we apply our whole mind to study both his promises and his threats, we may not be so rebellious as to cast off his yoke, but rather be held back always by such means as are necessary and proper to us. Let us pray that we may yield to him as willing servants, so that just as he of his free goodness has called us to himself, so also he may guide and govern us by his Holy Spirit, that we may give ourselves over to him and serve him in humility and fear, embracing his promises and trembling at his threats. And let us pray that in the meantime he will make us feel that if we are thus given over to his service, he will make us prosper and we shall be happy, especially happy because he has set before us the inheritance of the kingdom of heaven which he purchased for us in the person of his Holy Son. Let us pray that it may please him to grant this grace not only to us, but also to all people and nations of the earth, etc.